everyone, it's Victoria Stapleton from Little Brown Books for Young Readers welcoming you to a new episode of the Little Brown School and Library Podcast. Our guest today is a very special guest indeed, for it is Allie Benjamin. You know her from the National Book Award finalist novel, The Thing About Jellyfish, which is a book that has really captured hearts and minds all over the country, being selected for one book, one school, one book, one community reads for its seminal themes of grief, identity, adventurousness. She is back on the LBYR list with the next great Polly Fink, which is, I think, a novel, if she tells me correctly, but she may not know, of 370-odd pages, but it reads faster, but lingers longer than that. I think is fair to say. It's a it's a book that is a pleasure to read, but is something that is like thunder. It just keeps rolling on and on, and you keep thinking about it for quite some time to come. Allie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I love this book. I love these kids. I think one of the things I love about it is and we'll get to this in the min- in a minute, is the idea of how communities organize themselves around personalities, very powerful <laughs> personalities. But one of the things I love about novels is setting, particularly settings I haven't seen before. And you've set this book in modern but rural New England, which is not something we see Hi. often in, in newer children's literature. What was the attraction for you of this setting? Well, the easy answer to that, Victoria, is because it is my world. I live in rural, modern New England, so it is a world that I know pretty well. But that's the easy answer. Uh, There are several other reasons I decided to do it. One was that I wanted to create a school that felt completely like its own world, unlike any other school. The school is set in a falling down mansion that has kind of a haunted house vibe. The lawn is dotted with classical statues. The whole place is just surrounded for miles and miles by woods and fields. It's tiny. There are only 11 kids in the entire seventh grade. Most of them have known each other forever. I wanted it to feel really different, but I also didn't want it to be too privileged of a place. I wanted it to be a real community school. Um, Vermont has a model that they've adopted to try to stem the tide of rural school closures um, called the Town Academy, and it's a way of serving all the kids in a community, but the schools have a little bit more flexibility with how they're staffed and structured. And so that was a practical reason that allowed me to create a school that felt really, really different. Another reason I said it there was I wanted to make my main character uncomfortable. It is the story of a girl named Caitlin. She is new to the community. She is the 11th person in the entire grade. The school is too small for cliques. It's too small for her to escape into a group of kids where she already feels comfortable. Um, That retreating into cliques is something that I think all of us do at every age, even when we try not to, there's sort of a comfort in being around people that we just, that are just comfortable to us. She came from a bigger school. She didn't have to challenge herself to get to know people who were different. Uh, There was one kid she treated quite badly in her own school. And because she always had a peer group to return to, she never really had to face the impact of her actions. And I wanted to put her in a situation where she couldn't retreat into a clique. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's nowhere for her to go, but 
the kids who are already there. And she just has to figure out how to work it out with a group of kids that she keeps bumping up against again and again. And then a third reason is that this is a book that's about interrogating mythology. And Vermont has kind of a mythology to it. We think of it as Ben and Jerry's and tie-dyed hippies and organic farms. And all of that is real, but that's not the complete story of Vermont. I lived in Vermont for a number of years. Right now, I'm only a couple miles from the border. And the reality of Vermont is far more complex. There is a ton of rural poverty. There's a real fragility of life here. And right, setting the book there was a chance to scratch beneath the surface of that mythology that we all think of when we think of Vermont and examine the real life that exists a little bit more. I'm very intrigued by this idea of interrogating mythology. So as some listeners know, uh, before I was in publishing, I was in divinity school. And a lot of what I did was reading very old poetry that one calls myth. So ancient Near Eastern myths. And we typically in the modern world think about the word myth as a lie or an untruth. But really, if the the base sense of the word is that a myth is an organizing truth and huh, i'm wow. fascinated by speaking of the myths of vermont the organizing truths that people who live there use or people who think of it use just to put it in a comfortable place in mind mm. versus what's that what is the facticity and you're thinking a lot about history and storytelling and even the history of storytelling in this book Yes, I'd love to talk about history and storytelling in general. This book begins with oral histories and oral narratives are woven throughout. A lot of the book it takes the form of interviews that Caitlin does. It begins with them telling stories about a kid who had been in the class who doesn't return on the first day of seventh grade. Caitlin is the new kid to the school. She's listening to these stories that are being told about a kid she's never met, Pauly Fink. Pauly Fink, depending on who you talk to, was either a prankster or a klutz or an evil genius. They sort of elevate him to a place of almost mythology and legends. And they're telling stories that are true, but they are actively selecting which elements to include and which elements not to include. And I think this is a really interesting point about the line between mythology and history, that even true stories are by their very nature incomplete because we are choosing, we're just choosing which elements to include. This is something that all of us do. I think many of us were taught that history is a set of facts. And the more we learn, the more we begin to understand that history is actively constructed by human beings, each of whom comes with a different perspective, a different set of assumptions, a different knowledge base. And so even true stories, even nonfiction narratives are inherently incomplete. You can tell any story in so many different ways. There is no one grand narrative that is accurate. In terms of storytelling, the book does move from a very loose oral tradition into something that's written down. And along the way, as you read through this book and these different interviews and these different things that happen, you do weave through mythology, legend, allegory, hearsay. There's some parable in there. 
in addition to the first-person interviews, there's also a lot of newspaper stories, and then there's also some more modern forms of communication, like texts and emails. Chances are kids aren't really going to notice that all of those things are stitched in there, but it is something that teachers can use. And all of these elements combined sort of do, over the course of the book, break down the idea of there being a singular grand narrative. I love this idea because the absence of Polly speaks to an upending of a very old trope, which is about the one, whether that's Achilles or Neo or Harry Potter, that the trope of discovering that one is a chosen one or has a great destiny has a very long tradition in Western literature and storytelling. The absence of Polly, the one, creates almost this void or it's hard for me to explain. It's interesting to think about the characters defining themselves versus an absence rather than a presence and Hmm. trying to figure out how to organize themselves around that absence. Does that make sense? It sure does make sense. So related to this, they're telling all these stories about Pauly Fink, this sort of great, fascinating, hilarious, daredevil Pauly Fink. And they are, as they tell these stories, they're building his mythology so that he does become kind of a chosen one, except he's not there. So the more they talk about him, the bigger the vacuum is, the space where he used to be, the poly-sized hole that's in their life. Uh, The chosen one is a really interesting theme to explore. It is um, very much a part of our received wisdom that some people are or become elevated beyond the ordinary. They become almost superhuman. And I think a contemporary version of that is our notion of celebrity. It is not coincidental that the way they decide, the way these characters decide they're going to fill the poly-size hole in their life, in their class, is they're going to hold a reality, a reality TV-style competition to fill his shoes. Just thinking about that idea of the chosen one, I think there are a lot of reasons we do elevate individuals beyond the ordinary. Theoretically, the chosen ones are able to show us what's possible in the world. They can provide a kind of roadmap for us to transcend our own lives and our own ordinariness. It's worth noting that they also derive from and reinforce our assumptions about hierarchy and privilege, and it's worth exploring who gets to be chosen and how, whom do we call our geniuses and who can get away with pranks? Is that something that is accessible to everyone equally. Related to the idea of the chosen one, the kids choose Caitlin to run this competition to fill Polly's shoes. They figure she is the only objective one since she's the one who hasn't met him. Um, And so they put her in charge. And the whole book really is an exploration of what is it we gain when we elevate some people to the chosen one category, but also what is it we lose? What is it we lose in our ability to see those individuals as real people? What do we fail to notice about our own world and the people who are in our own world when we are busy looking at the chosen one, when we're busy sort of watching that person who has that celebrity status? What do we fail to see in ourselves? Because the power we give these individuals doesn't come from nowhere. We're actually giving them some of our own power. 
And that was something I really wanted to explore. What happens if we claim that power for ourselves? And Caitlin is a kid who begins the book not feeling like she has a whole lot of power. And over the course of the book, she manages to explore and exercise her own power and really think about her power in relationship to the rest of the world. If I can have a feminist moment here, uh-huh. and I think I can with you. I Absolutely. am just thinking about this now. It's really interesting to consider it is a woman character, a female character taking control of the narrative and the organizing organizational truth of a male character. Mm-hmm. and refracting yes. that for the community through her own sensibility. There's a fair amount of allegory woven into the book, in particular around this theme of the chosen one. And there is a moment in this book where we see the mythology around the chosen one topple. And the question that that opens up is, what are we left with when our so-called heroes fall? Related to Caitlin being a girl who takes control, Caitlin is a kid who, from the very first pages, longs for power, longs for control, longs for some kind of organizing rules that will allow her to have those things. But she's also scared, and she's insecure, and she's sort of frozen. She's done some things in the past to try to make herself feel stronger. I would argue that they didn't actually make her stronger, but they might have made her feel stronger. And the competition gives her the chance to express real power and real strength and to use it in ways that are not harmful to the world around her. And this is incredibly liberating for her as a society. I don't think we give girls a whole lot of healthy ways to express their strength and their power. We talk all about mean girls as if it is a character flaw and not a societal flaw. Uh, I think often what happens with mean girls is they are just desperate to show strength and they haven't been given a whole lot of role models and they haven't been given a whole lot of support when they have tried to exercise their strength. And that is something that I am actively exploring in this book. I really want to talk about girls and power. It's super interesting to me because you've stripped down this community to its really bare essentials and thinking about the comfort, the lack of comfort of an escape into a clique. That escape is not present Mm -hmm. for her. There is no longer a chosen that is an organizing principle of the community. There is, it's an absence that needs to be, I don't know, I don't, not filled, but redefined, but There are so many levels at which she needs to confront realities and to construct realities in a more positive, fruitful way than what she's done in the past. And it's possible. And it's possible. It's possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and Caitlin's organizing principle at the end of the book is very, very different from where she starts. And I would say that that's true for all of the kids. They begin in one place and they end in a place that is much more uh, egalitarian, I would say. And to me, that was really an important part of weaving this tale, is how do we end in a place where each character is elevating themselves, but also the community as a whole. They're able to build a stronger community by expressing their true selves a little bit more. And what's fascinating as an extra layer to me on this is that you have used one of the most basic traditions of Western culture as one of the vehicles for doing this. Homer and the other great classics 
play a huge role in your story. I know a lot of middle schoolers will not be familiar with these texts, but some of them are. But we live, whatever age, we, we live much of our lives determined by the values and metaphors and organizational principles in those books. And I think it's, it's interesting that this very stripped down story goes back to some of our earliest organizational stories. The book begins with an epigraph from Emily Wilson's new translation of Homer's The Odyssey. It's the first English translation by a woman. And there's a line, It's I think it's line 10 of The Odyssey, where she says, tell the old story for our modern times. I love the idea that there are certain stories that connect us through space and time and which every generation and indeed every new teller has the chance to make new again, to sort of, you take this story, you take its themes, you apply it to your own world, it becomes something different in your hands. I really felt that when I read Emily Wilson's translation of the Odyssey, I was really excited. I mean, the very first line, she says, I, I might not be getting this exactly right, but saying, O muse of a complicated man. And just that word complicated uh, sets the tone for the rest of the, for the rest of the translation. She is examining something new. The kids are studying ancient Greece. At first, it seems really abstract and uninteresting to Caitlin. But anytime you begin to dive deep into any any of our past, any of our collective human past, uh, you can't help but bump up against parallels. You begin to see that there really are themes and questions that have connected human beings throughout time. I spent one semester in Greece when I was in college. It was the first time I really began to feel that connection between the past and the present, uh, between the lives that were lived then and my own life. It was the first time I really got it, that I am a part of a much, much bigger story than my own life, and that history isn't something abstract. History is active. It's not something that happened. It's happening. It's happening right now. History has always been, and it's always only been, real people living real lives and making real choices. And that is something I wanted to explore. The story forms a kind of retelling of Plato's allegory of the cave, which is just this thought experiment from 2,000 years ago that I love. I think it's really beautiful. It's all about unlearning assumptions. I think it still feels wonderfully radical because the allegory is about the discomfort that one feels when you discover that what you thought you knew for sure turns out to be wrong. It's about unlearning your world, and that is a huge part of growing up. But if we're lucky, it doesn't stop when we are, quote unquote, adults. The process never ends. And I think Plato, what he articulated really well was that unlearning our assumptions can be really scary. It can often alienate us from the people we've known before, and yet the discomfort is a necessary part of opening up our world. There are other parallels with the classics, too. One of the big ones is the kids discuss scapegoating and the way humans have over time sometimes treated other people badly as a way of making themselves feel more safe. That feels really relevant to our modern times. And then they explore the questions that the Greeks explored. They're certainly not the only society to have explored it, but how should we live? What is a good life? The Greeks had a great word, eudaimonia. There are different pronunciations, but essentially it's not so much about short-term happiness. They define a good life as doing things that you will be proud of at the end of your life. 
So it's not about the question, what do I want to do now? What makes me feel good now? But when you look back on your life, what will you wish you had done? And I think that's a question that all of us think about all the time. I have this idea in my mind about the difference between middle grade literature and YA literature. And I think this novel really captures that moment for me. In a middle grade, in a say in a very young book, like a picture book or a very early chapter book, the organizing assumptions of the world are not in play. Your parents say to do it, so you do it. Just the rules of the world are a given. In a good middle grade novel, characters begin to understand the world exists as it does because human beings, mainly adults, make choices. Mm -hmm. It is the world as it is, is not a given. It is not immutable. It is a function of human choices. And in YA literature, those characters start to take the power to remake the world in their own images. And I think this novel really captures the moments where that realization that the world is made of choices comes into for lack of a better term, moral operability. I know I also hmm. majored in philosophy and in religion in college, so I have a tendency to overuse syllables. <laughs> but it is this idea that it becomes the, the, the morality of that realization, that the world is made of choices, becomes functional for them, for, for Caitlin and for these kids. So they're beginning with these old stories about Pauli, about Greek history and Greek myth and Greek philosophy, and they're moving through this process into realizing we made Pauli in a way that he did not make himself. We made this school in a way that could exist nowhere else because we are those who chose it, chose to make it, mm -hmm. and we can make, going forward from this time, we can remake whatever place that we're in, whatever world that we're in, through our choices. That's right. That's right. I think that's very well said. I keep thinking of the phrase, we are the ones we've been waiting for. That really resonated. That was a phrase I heard a lot while writing the book. And it was a phrase that I really, I, I don't know, I just thought about it a lot as I was writing. One of the things I really love about the middle school age is that middle school kids are still young. They still feel a kind of freedom to laugh and they are quirky and they are, they can be really loose and hilarious, but at the same time, they're really wrestling with some of the big ideas and they're wrestling with who they are separate from the influences that they've always had. Who are they separate from their parents or grandparents or guardians? Who are they as separate individuals from their teachers? And it's that, that play of being capable of wrestling with the big ideas and also being able to just put that aside and laugh that I feel this age, it's a really special age. It's a really great age. And I think there's so much opportunity in this age. There's a lot, lot of opportunities to make middle school kids a part of a community in a way we don't always. I think sometimes we assume the worst about middle school kids and we kind of, uh, you know, just treated as an age to be gotten through when it's this age that's unbelievably rich with opportunities for exploration. Well, I validate you in that. And I think that is a great note on which to end the podcast episode. Thank you for joining us today, Allie. It was a pleasure. This has been Victoria Stapleton from Little Brown Books for Young Readers. And with me has been Allie Benjamin. Her new book is The Next Great Polly Fink. You should place it on your bedside table, 
on your classroom bookshelf and in your shopping cart now. We'll see you next time.